Hi, and welcome to hey. Queen's Crime Storytime. My name is Charlie. My name is Sophie. And today we are recording remotely for the first time. It is so strange. It's fucking weird I'm not here. having you next to me in the chaos. You are there. I'm in my house, but you are not here in my house. And it's I am strange. in the twilight zone. You have become an entity of the night. Went to the dentist. <laughs> Yeah, and part of me was taken out of my mouth forever and ever. Forever. I mean, complete. So, yeah, so you are recovering at the moment, but we're still recording because we are dedicated. And brave. Yeah, dedicated is the word. So dedicated. (laughs) Um, I would like to actually open the episode this time by saying, please leave a rating and a review if you can. Um, Yeah. I've got a couple more from last week and it just makes me really fucking happy i just really like it so please if you're listening and you haven't left us a little rating just just dink it on because it it's nice easy as pie should we get started let's go so the last couple of weeks we've done cases that have been quite recent so we did tamil horsford and we did the slender man stabbing both Mm -hmm. of which were from the last few years really um before that we've been doing stories from like the last couple of decades which is like, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah. However, today we're going to go yeah. a little further back in time this week. And oh. I also thought that the time is right for us to tell the story of our first serial killer. Oh my God, yay! Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I've been keeping this a secret because she doesn't like to have the cases before we do it. She likes yeah, surprise. I surprises. I'm like, so oh, I'm not. I accidentally did let slip something <laughs> earlier, but we won't go into that right yeah. now. But yeah, no, so no, she not. doesn't know who this is. No, I don't. So we're going to 1943. <laughs> Ooh. So in 1943, a little boy was born, and he was called Rodney to a Mexican American family. His mom was called Ana Maria Gutierrez, and his dad was called Raúl Alcala Bucar. Bucor, Buc- whatever. You nailed it. It's fine. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> Keep going. Just, just pretend you nailed it. <laughs> so the family consisting of Anna Maria and Raul, their son Rodney, and their two daughters lived in San Antonio, Texas, where they lived together until 1951. Now, just I noticed then, because normally I don't get to look at Sophie that much because we're next mm-hmm. to each other, but seeing your face on the screen then, you had like a look of realisation. You had like yeah, a. I think I know who this is. Who do you think it is? I think it's Richard Ramirez. Oh, <laughs> it's like, not because he has like a similar family setup. When you say a similar family he... setup, do you mean Mexican parents? So, so this is. A serial no. killer of South American heritage, but it's not Richard Ramirez. Okay. So I don't know if you know, I don't know if I've ever heard you talk about this guy, actually. It'll be interesting to see if you know who he is. Mm, so maybe. let's see how this goes. Yeah. Um. So they lived in San Antonio, Texas until 1951. It was mm-hmm. at this point, however, that Raul decided he'd had enough of San Antonio and he would uproot all of them he made the choice to move his family back to Mexico. So he'd reached the conclusion that it was easier for him to find work in Mexico. And obviously his opinions were the most important as the patriarch of the family. However, this plan didn't quite reach fruition and he ended up straight up abandoning his family three years later in 1954. That's rude. What, he just left them in Mexico? Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's what literally that's what happened. Point. Yeah, that's I'm what happened. Out. Bye. <laughs> yeah, just so, himself out of Mexico. Basically, the little family oh. was quite traditional in nature up until the point Raul straight up dipped, and this meant that Rodney, who was just wow. eleven years old at the time, felt the crushing oh. weight of being the man of the house. That's a lot on a on a child that aged back in that time. I think it's a lot of. Let's be real. Pressure. I would hate it. I would not. I would. Be like, I'm a so, girl now. <laughs> So, I mean, realizing that things were not working out the way she wanted to in Mexico, Anna Maria made the choice to move back to America. And this time, she settled her three children into a suburb of Los Angeles. There isn't a lot of information available about how Rodney got on while he was in school. But we do know that when he turned 17 in 1961, he joined the United States Army. So this never ends well when they join the army. They come back because you were little creeps or, like, weirdos. And it's like, no, no. No, don't. <laughs> don't go back. Is he dishonorably discharged? Whatever it's called. Maybe. Oh, I'm not shocked. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. So he served as a clerk, but this would not be a lifelong career. In fact, he only lasted three years, and he didn't leave of his own volition. <laughs> so you called Delightful. it. Oops. He was discharged on medical grounds in 1964 oh. after he had a bit of an episode. What kind of episode, shall we? So, I will tell you. Military psychiatrists at the time described this as a, quote, nervous breakdown, end quote. Oh, okay. He went AWOL, which, as I'm sure everyone already knows, means absent without leave. So, yeah. he just left. He was just like, mm, I'm, I'm done. I've had enough. <laughs> so, he hitchhiked from Fort Bragg, where he was stationed, to his mother's house. Now, I don't know hey? the address that his mother lived at. So I don't know the exact address. All I know is it was a suburb of LA. I do know that the distance from Fort Bragg to LA is 544 Mm -hmm. miles. And it takes around nine and a half hours depending on traffic. So obviously, depending on which area of LA Anna Maria lived, it could be give or take a few miles. But this is basically Mm -hmm. saying that Rodney hitchhiked over 500 miles. I'm sure that people have done much further. I'm sure they. Yeah. I'm sure people have hitchhiked all across America, but yeah. this does seem kind of like a lot, especially because he didn't really have a plan other than to go back to his mom's house. Yeah, it, it seems, seems a bit suspicious it to seems just like your way back home. Yeah. So once the military figured out where he was, which I don't think mm-hmm. took that long, they got him hospitalized, no. and he was seen by a psychiatrist and given an official diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder. Hmm. Hmm. It seems like a very sugar-coated diagnosis. It feels like there was something he was probably trying to go away from. Something. Oh no, no, no! It's not a sugar-coated diagnosis. That's a fucking diagnosis. No, I feel it sounds like they're downplaying something else. Do you know what antisocial personality disorder is? Because if you don't, I do have information here that I'm going to tell you. Give it. So now, colloquially, to say that someone is antisocial. They might mm. just mean that they don't like socializing. So I have been described before as being antisocial because I like to spend alone time. No, I like to spend time alone. Yeah. And Same I don't often it. seek out social gatherings. So people have said, uh-huh. oh, she's antisocial. However, this yes. is not a true definition of being antisocial or having antisocial personality disorder. It's a different thing completely. So I will read out some signs to look out for from the NHS website. Thank you. I will begin now exploit manipulate or violate the rights of others lack concern regret or remorse about other people's distress 
behave irresponsibly and show disregard for normal social behavior, have difficulty sustaining long-term relationships, be unable to control their anger, lack guilt or not learn from their mistakes, blame others for problems in their lives, and repeatedly break the law. I reckon here is the last few more. So as you can see, this doesn't sound great. As a matter of fact, people with antisocial personality disorder are more commonly known as sociopaths, which is a term Mm -hmm. that I'm sure you're familiar with. Yeah. (laughs) However, Rodney didn't let his discharge from the military and shiny new mental illness diagnosis stop him from having a good time. He kept his shit together long enough to graduate from the UCLA School of Fine Arts, where he earned himself a degree. So Rodney had an IQ of 135, which is really high. So he was really smart. That's Not cool. Like a good person, but really smart. He was clever. Yeah. Um, and he graduated with a bachelor's degree in 1968. So 1968 yes. would appear to have been a rather pivotal year for Rodney in his life. Um, because mm-hmm. this is the year that he also committed his first known crime. Oh. I feel like it's important to stress first known here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's very unusual for someone to start with something so brutal. If you find it difficult to listen to the details, you might want to skip ahead a few minutes. So on the 25th of September 1968, just a couple of months after Rodney had graduated with his degree, eight-year-old Tally Shapiro was walking to school. Fortunately, I'm just going to say it right now, Tally is still alive. And in her adult life, she's spoken out about what happened to her. As she walked along Sunset Boulevard, a young man driving a beige Plymouth pulled up alongside her and asked if she wanted a ride. This Mm -hmm. man was 25-year-old Rodney Alcala. At this point, Tally said that she didn't talk to strangers, which is exactly what you should do when you're faced with a stranger. However, Tally revealed that Rodney told her that he knew her parents. Uh, I know, I fucking hate that so much. It's so gross. Oh, it's fine because I'm not really a stranger. No, your parents are they kind of know each other. No, yeah, either. it's so creepy. No. But so many it's predators disgusting. use that line to get. Yeah, children, and it's so... it doesn't help that it's convincing <sighs> to someone that small. Exactly, at eight years old, you're not going to know who your parents know. So no, she exactly. said, she said, "quote I really didn't want to get into the car, but I was raised to respect my elders. I didn't know to oh. fear people." End quote. Oh. No. I suppose as well, when you're a child, you are raised to literally do everything that your parents tell you. So yeah, and you trust them. Your parents. Exactly, you trust your mom and dad. Mm-hmm. So if a stranger says, oh, it's okay, I know your mom and dad. I know the most trusted people in the world to you. Yeah. A child is probably going to listen to that, and that's terrifying. I'm glad I don't have kids because I would be terrified every day. I would not go. <laughs> Tally got into the car. However, this unusual encounter didn't go unnoticed. A random dude called Donald Haynes happened to be there, and he saw the whole thing and thought it was shady as fuck. Wow. So he followed Rodney in his car. Rodney took little Tally into his apartment. At this point, our witness found a payphone and called the police. Mm. So, I mean, if you think about it, all you've seen is a child Mm. get into a car and then... The child leave the car with a man in an apartment. And that's not, I don't think that's a very unusual scenario, but there must have been something about it that just made this guy feel really fucking uncomfortable. It was probably a body language or something if she was reluctant to go in. Yeah, it's just. Into the car with him and then having to go into where he lives. Exactly. But it's, it's just one of those things where obviously he probably wouldn't have been able to hear any dialogue. 
but it's just oh, yeah, interesting no, how your gut instinct will often tell you everything you need to know. Yeah, you still picked up on it. Exactly, but this guy's gut instinct must have been like fucking on it. Mm. So the call was made at 8.15am, because remember, she was walking to school, so this is really early in the morning. And Officer Chris Camacho was dispatched to the address with two other officers. Chris stayed at the front of the building, and his colleagues each went around to the back and to the side. Chris knocked and got no answer. He knocked again, and Rodney finally answered, seeming to realise that the police were not just going to leave. He shouted to Officer Chris through a window that he was just getting out of the shower, so hold on a sec. Rodney pulled the curtain aside at the front door, and Officer Chris immediately noticed through the large glass pane in the door that Rodney was naked. He was also bone dry. Oh, that's creepy. What's Rodney he lying about? Like, if yeah. So Rodney was like, be right back, gonna put some clothes on, and nipped out of sight. Officer Chris was not an idiot, and he could tell right away that something was iffy. Incidentally, this was his first shift back after being shot on duty. Oh my god. He kicked the door down like a bad motherfucker. Yeah, thank you. He's recovering from a fucking bullet wound, and he just, like, kicks the door in, like... He's probably lost all time and patience for shit like this. Probably. So Chris has spoken later about what he saw when he entered the apartment. Mm-hmm. He saw Tally's tiny body lying naked oh. on the floor in a huge pool of blood. And he oh. said that oh he said God. later that the pool of blood looked too big to have come out of a child that small. Oh, that like that's how much it was. Yeah. She had been raped and beaten in the head, and she had a large weightlifting bar across her neck, cutting off her air. Oh my god. Yeah, what? so she's lying on the floor on her back and this yeah. like, big weightlifting bar that's just yeah. sat there on her neck yeah. and it's crushing her. So that's Chris horrible. immediately, first thing he did was he grabbed a towel to avoid getting fingerprints on it and contaminating Good. the scene. And he lifted the mm-hmm. bar up straight away. Um, Chris actually thought the little girl had died. She was incredibly mm. pale and there was just so much blood. He thought there's no way that she could live through yeah. it. Um, but after removing the bar, she began to cough. So Which she is. was rushed to hospital straight away, and amazingly, her life was actually saved. However, <sighs> rendering aid to Tally meant that Rodney escaped through the back door. Mm-hmm. The officers around the building rushed to help, and it meant that Rodney was able to get away. Yeah. The fact that Rodney got away has haunted Chris Camacho for the rest of his life. He feels incredibly grateful that he was able to save Tally, but considering Mm. what Rodney went on to do, you can understand why it will play on his mind. Officer Chris was pivotal in trials and court dates later on in the story, and he testified on the stand four separate times. But we're going to get to all that later. We're nowhere near there yet. For now, we need to talk about what this asshole did next. So after raping and trying his hardest to kill an eight-year-old, he fucked off to New York and got himself a new life. Wow. I guess in the 60s, you could just do that because how were they going to check? You could be whoever you want, wherever you want. Exactly. At any time, Nobody convenient really to. checked anyone's background. Nobody checked social security details. He was placed on the FBI's most wanted list, though, so it's not as if nobody wow. cared. It's not as yeah. if they didn't care about him. There just wasn't really a good way to track people down in the 60s because the technology mm-hmm. just didn't exist yet. There wasn't really no. even CCTV or anything like that. No. Like, it, you, you couldn't do it. So Rodney renamed himself John Berger. <laughs> and you like that. It's like me doing spelled, Betty Pasta. It's spelled B-E-R-G-E-R. Jordan. 
Huh? And my name is Dan Cooper. <laughs> no, so his name is John Berger, and he decided to go back to school again. He had one degree, but he wanted another qualification after getting his fine arts bachelor's at UCLA. This time, he enrolled in the New York University Film School and was taught directly by none other than Roman Polanski. Yeah, so if you just made a joke, like, <laughs> like going over and over head. my head, like, if you name a so film next, that he's, what so are my it? next line is so I expect that everyone is familiar with Roman Polanski. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, I'm I'm wrong. Line is one. <laughs> if you're not familiar with him, I will give you a very yes. quick refresh. So Roman Polanski is an incredibly famous film director. In 1968, he was teaching at New York University and taught Rodney Alcala how to use a camera. Nine years later, he would plead guilty to having sex with a 13-year-old, which is literally rape, as not (laughs) only was she a 13-year-old child and therefore incapable of consent, but he gave her champagne and quaaludes, and as she told him to keep away, he kept attacking her and kept raping her. I take it this is what he's famous for. Because I thought he was... He pled guilty to this. I thought he was he's famous for like directing a lot of films. He is. So is he like, pled just so wait, just so just shut up for a second. So he pled guilty to this. He did this. This happened. Yeah, of course. He fled to France, where there is no extradition law to the United States. He has even won multiple Oscars since then because he kept directing films. What? Yeah, oh. Roman Polanski is an Oscar-winning director, and all of the Oscars happened after he raped a kid. How? When did he plead guilty to this? Like immediately after, or after the Oscars winnings? Yeah, yeah. So, so basically, what happened was he raped a child. Yeah. He got charged with it. He pled guilty, mm-hmm. and then instead of going to prison, he ran away to France. France has no extradition laws to the United States, so he just was able to live there and keep doing director stuff and being really famous and winning Oscars. What a dick. Why is no yeah. one, like, jumped him? I mean, like, it's not as if nobody knows this. I'm quite surprised that you hadn't at least heard of him already. I'm surprised, um, too. Yeah, so basically, that's atrocious. long story short, he's a massive pedo, and he ended yeah. up tutoring this serial killer child rapist at uni. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing is super messed up because you just think, what are the chances of these two assholes not only meeting each other, but like like knowing each other? It's weird. So Rodney really enjoyed his time at NYU and he even got a job in 1969 as a camp counsellor at a children's art summer camp. No, Someone that raped and tried his hardest to kill an eight-year-old is now working at a children's summer camp. Yeah, he feels like he's on a school trip. That's great I for him. hate this though. It's so, but sickening. he did. I mean, you might like this next part. So he changed his alias a little again. So now he's called himself John Burger, spelled like a burger. Hey, so is he, B- he added a middle U R G E R. So maybe it should be mustard because no he one did likes keep him. both burger spellings as the alias, depending on what he wanted to do. Yeah. Um, he was so popular at the camp actually that he got invited back to work with the children the following three summers for a total of three years. He also began to work as a photographer in Manhattan and most of his subjects were young women, which I'm sure doesn't fucking surprise anybody. It doesn't, but it's still However, gross. While he was in New York, he wasn't just teaching children at a summer camp and taking photos of young women. He was mm. also still being a huge predator. 
So when I learned, so when I first learned that he worked at a children's summer camp, the first time I learned about this case and I knew that that's what he did for a living, I just felt this huge wave of anxiety. Like, holy shit, he's around all these fucking kids. After what he did to Tali Shapiro, that's terrifying. Yeah. But there isn't any record of him hurting a child at summer camp. If Mm -hmm. that kind of makes you feel better. Which I was actually surprised by that. I thought there's no way he didn't diddle any of those fucking kids. Yeah, but I don't think he did. And if if he did, nobody has ever come forward and accused him of it. Mm. So interesting. Maybe he was. I mean, he is very intelligent. A lot of very successful. I say successful. That's not the right word for it. But a lot of um, predators who go a long time without getting caught are Mm. very academically gifted. So maybe he was just really good at compartmentalizing and was able to think, "I'm not gonna." I'm not going to diddle at work. And be reckless and then end up getting caught. Exactly. If so I just space it out. Good at separating it and it just, yeah. it worked for him. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. I'm obviously glad that he never hurt any of those children. But at the same time, it's like, mm-hmm. why couldn't he have just got caught earlier? <laughs> yes. Now, this doesn't mean that he didn't commit any crimes. So there is mm-hmm. one that we know of for certain, but it didn't actually get solved until 40 years later in 2011 thanks to the advancements of DNA technology. Hmm. So on the 24th of June, 1971, a 23-year-old woman named Cornelia Michelle Crilly was found dead in her apartment. Mm -hmm. I found a newspaper article from the New York Times that was published the following day, and I will read an excerpt from it now. Quote, A 23-year-old airline hostess was found murdered in her Yorkville apartment last night. The police said she'd been raped and then strangled by stockings that were wrapped around her neck. The victim was identified as Cornelia Michelle Crilly, a stewardess with Transworld Airlines, who had just moved into her three-room apartment on the second floor of a five-story building at 427 East 83rd Street between York and First Avenues, end quote. So, so she literally just moved in. I was going to say, she just moved into that apartment and then got brutally murdered. Yes. That's horrible. Okay, That's terrible. I'm out. I'm gone. <laughs> yep. So Cornelia's mother couldn't get hold of her, and so she called her boyfriend, Leon Borstein, who actually worked as a homicide prosecutor in Brooklyn. Wow. He hadn't spoken to her either, so he went to the police. Um, so he went with the police to her apartment to check on her at quarter to nine in the evening. The yeah. police entered the apartment through the fire escape, and they got in through a window at the back. But devastatingly, Cornelia was dead. Mm. Trigger warning, this is terrible. Um, she had been raped and she was partially clothed on her bed. She'd been strangled with a pair of stockings that was still wrapped around her neck and she had a pair of underwear stuffed in her mouth. Police said that there was no indication of a robbery and that it did not appear that robbery was any kind of motive because valuables and money were in the apartment and they were undisturbed. So this was clearly a sexually motivated crime. Mm, Cornelia yeah. was living alone and had been moving furniture into the apartment. I was thinking when I was writing this, had someone stopped to help her with a large item and then attacked her once they were inside? Or Mm -hmm. had they maybe come through the fire escape like the police did? Yeah. We don't know. Um, The investigation stalled for years. Leon Borstein initially helped the police interviewing witnesses due to his work in the prosecutor's office, but later he actually became a suspect himself because leads dried up. And they always look at the partner, they always look at the boyfriend. Yeah. Uh, and the police actually stopped sharing information with him. Well, well I kind of get that. I, I get it, it too, but it's just shitty. You know, it, it just it's, sucks. It is shit. 
Yeah. So, and this is where it kind of stayed until 2003. But we'll get to that later because okay. I rather, I kind of want to stick roughly to the timeline rather than mm, jumping on yeah. all over the place. Yeah, um, of course. But yeah, so after he killed Cornelia and was feeling like he got away with it, he then got invited back to do his third summer of work at the George Mills Art Camp. He's probably very happy. Yeah. I find that really icky. He probably got to project really, really disturbing. Disturbing. Mm -hmm. That, yeah, he'd just broken into a woman's house and raped her and killed her. And then he got invited back to work with children. And it's Mm -hmm. like, you probably stockpiled all that feeling and then took it out on a grown woman so that he wouldn't pick up his pattern. Yeah. However, this summer there would be his last. No. So remember how we said about how he made the FBI's most wanted list? Yes. So back then, it wasn't like it was shown on like TV on the news and so I mean maybe it was in the sixties actually shown on the news, but basically wanted posters were displayed in post offices all around the country. So it just so happened that two of the campers at the summer camp recognized Rodney Alcala's photo. They thought it looked an awful lot like the arts camp counselor, John Berger. In fact, they thought the resemblance was so similar to the camp directors. (laughs) The camp directors were like, holy shit, that's John Berger. And they called the FBI. (laughs) So Manny is a little window. Yeah. Please. <laughs> so the FBI arrived and they didn't waste any time fingerprinting John Berger, just to be sure. And what do you know? It was a perfect match to the prince of the Tally Shapiro attempted murder. So they yeah. extradited his ass back to California immediately. They were like, Good. no, you're coming with us. So yeah. if you weren't already frustrated, you're about to get even more frustrated. So Bye. The crimes that he committed against Tally were rape and attempted mm-hmm. murder, right? Right. So he wasn't charged with either of those things. This is because Tally's family were terrified. After she got mm. attacked, they didn't want her to testify at the trial. She was 11 years old at this point, and they didn't want her to have to relive the horrific experience that had already destroyed her childhood. Yeah. Okay. So they moved to Mexico and refused to allow her to testify. <sighs> The authorities didn't want to charge him with a, like like really huge, massive crimes like rape and attempted murder without their key witness in case yeah. he got off on it and then he's, mm-hmm. he's free. So rather than risk losing the trial, they charged him only for child molestation. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I guess that's the next best thing. The good news, he was yeah. convicted. Hey. The bad news, he was only sentenced to three years. That doesn't shock me. For beating an eight-year-old's head in, raping her, and crushing her neck with a weightlifting bar. Three years. Disgusting. So Officer Chris, who was there at the scene, he was also at the trial, and he was shocked that he only got Mm. three years. Wow. And the bad news gets worse, because he was released on parole after serving only one year and five months of his sentence. What was the point of even sending him to prison? Exactly. And it's like, you know what I find fucking hilarious? So a state prison psychiatrist determined that Alcala had, quote, considerably improved during his time incarcerated, end quote. It's like when people say, oh, yeah, he's a model prisoner. He's really well behaved in prison. Let's get him free. And it's like, well, of course he fucking is because there's no fucking kids in prison. Yeah, he wants to get out so he can do more crime. If he's a child molester or he rapes women. And they're like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, he's really well behaved in prison. That's because he's surrounded by, like, six-foot men. He he doesn't want to, yeah. like, book them. He's not a threat no. to them. No. Keep him away from the people who he's a threat to, please. 
Exactly. And I just find it absolutely bonkers that 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 is something that is still used as an argument to let people go. Mm -hmm. It's like good behavior in prison. Well, yeah, no fucking shit. Yeah, they're going to be great. I'll get off my soapbox. I just needed to have a little. I have opinions about that. So, (laughs) back on track. It didn't take him long for him to assault another child. Mm. In 1974, he kidnapped and assaulted a 13-year-old who was kept anonymous, and she was only referred to in court documents as Julie J. So, she had been waiting at a bus stop um, at Huntington Beach, and just like Tally, she was on her way to school, which is the most Mm. innocent fucking thing in the world. Um, Mm. Rodney pulled up alongside her and offered her a ride. Does this sound familiar to you? He's definitely got a fucking MO. So he refused to take Julie to school or let her out of the car, and she was beginning to panic, understandably. He drove them both to Balsa Chica State Beach, where he literally dragged her to the cliffs there. He forced her to smoke weed with him, and he kissed (gasps) her. That's awful. It's disgusting. So she managed to get to a payphone and call 911. So Rodney was arrested and convicted, but only... He was only convicted of violating his parole and giving marijuana to a minor. What about fucking kidnapping? Yeah. What about assault? That... Mm-hmm. It, it, oh. So Battery? the thing is, he spent two years in prison for this, which, if you remember, is longer than for what he did to Tally. That's backwards, isn't it? Yeah, it's... Yeah. Whatever. The justice system is a mess. He no. was released on parole once again in 1977. Oh and mm-hmm. he had the audacity to ask his parole officer for permission to go back to New York for the summer to visit his relatives. Can we just throw him off that cliff and be done with it? Do you know what's fucking bonkers, though? He was actually yeah. allowed to do it. <sighs> Sophie just had a twitch. She, I saw her face I did. She was like... My whole eye closed on that. <laughs> I was for a second, I was like, did she just wink at me? No, she just had a fucking, like, twitch. <laughs> he was allowed... so this is super weird because firstly usually when you're on parole you're not allowed to leave the state that you're in Mm. so but this wasn't just leaving the state this is traveling from coast to coast this is one side of america to the other not only that but rodney was a known flight risk he had run from punishment before and he would definitely do it again if given the chance not only that, but he was a violent offender and a danger to children. But he was yeah, and clearly a repeating offender. But why they let him go? Because did they let him go unsupervised? Yeah. Oh, why? Who the fuck does yeah, that? Yeah, they were literally like, "Oh, enjoy your summer in New York." Bye. What's the point? You don't want to do this podcast anymore, do you? You're like, no, what's the point of this guy? Yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> so it would only be a week. Before this was proven to be a huge fuck up. Roll out the guillotine. Seven days. That's all it took. Rodney had resumed his work as a photographer. He began right. young women and offering his photography services. So total strangers. And he plied mm. them with compliments about their beauty and their natural ability to model. We don't know exactly how they met, but we do know that he crossed paths with a 23-year-old socialite named Ellen Hover. Her dad is Herman Hover, and he's the owner of Ciro's, which is a very famous Hollywood nightclub. Oh, nice. So her dad mingled with the absolute hottest in show business. So, I mean, her godfathers are Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin. Wow, that's that's something. Yeah. That's something. He had the best elbows to rub with. That's incredible. He had some amazing 
like celebrity wow. connections. And obviously, <laughs> as a consequence of that, so she loved music and she actually wanted to be an orchestra conductor. That's so fucking cool. Really I'll never cool get over that. Aspiration, I think. Yeah. You don't have to be it's very specific. Yeah. <laughs> That's what she wanted. Um, yeah. She obviously was also described by everyone as being incredibly beautiful because all these women are. Um, yeah. Her boyfriend at the time, Bruce Dittness, told how she caught a lot of people's eye. So he said, quote, mm. we would walk into restaurants and people would spill things on themselves. End quote. <laughs> I can't imagine it. Just like, like people squirting out ketchup balls, like really dropping their champagne. Sort of like, you know, like it's those really American funny. infomercials? Yeah. People like, like very... really dramatically like drop everything. I imagine it's yeah. like that whenever she walks into a room. <laughs> just like, people just you can't use her hands anymore. They're just dazzled. So clearly she was physically beautiful, but as well as that, because anyone mm. can be pretty, I think she obviously had a presence about her that not a lot of people have, um, mm. from the sounds of just what people have said about her. So mm. in her diary, she wrote down that on the 15th of July, 1977, she was due to meet someone called John Berger for a photography appointment, and she was never seen alive again. That's... That's really sad because obviously being a socialite, you're probably used to meeting that type of person all the time. Yeah. So it's just a very a innocuous like, thing. Photographers and, and then for that to be the last thing you ever do is yeah. really sad because she had so much more to do. She, yeah, she had so much plan. She had so much going for her. So aside from the name in her date book, there weren't really any other leads and Ellen had seemingly just vanished. Her boyfriend mm. in France put up flyers around New York City with her photo, and her dad and stepmother took out an advert in the New York Times asking for information on who John Berger was. They also hired mm. a private detective. Yeah. I can't remember at this point, is his name like Berger with a U or an E? Yeah, so he's already done the part where he changed it from U and E, and mm. he kind of just yeah. switches depending on... He's going to full Berger now. Yeah. yeah, so the thing is, at this point, they came up short. Um mm. Rodney may have noticed the huge ad in the New York Times and he promptly moved back to LA. So he yeah. saw all the attention that this was getting and he just noped immediately out of there. Um, yeah, you fucked up. John Berger alias and he started using his real name again and he got a job working for the Los Angeles Times as a typesetter. That's scary. Don't let them into like the news building. Um, Ellen's boyfriend <laughs> yeah. Bruce said in an interview that about two weeks after she disappeared, the police told him that a man with California connections might have been involved. But he'd fled at this point, and Rodney Alcala had actually got away with his second murder. That's so frustrating. It's like, just beyond your fingertips. What's that phrase? Like, out of your grasp? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that would really piss me off. And that poor boyfriend just constantly not knowing where she is or who what happened to her yeah it's real shitty that would be very distressing and haunting so the Me 70s 80s were not called the golden age of serial killers for nothing the world seemed mm -hmm. to be plagued with serial killers during this period in america mm -hmm. they had to deal with gsk son of sam btk ted bundy fucking loads more and here in the uk we had people like dennis nielsen and the yorkshire ripper at the time that Rodney Alcala was travelling around the states being a massive bellend, he wasn't the only one. Los Angeles no. was currently dealing with the Hillside Stranglers, two men who were killing young women and leaving their bodies for discovery all around LA. Mm -hmm. So when 18-year-old Jill Barkham was found dead off Mulholland Drive in November 1977, officials immediately thought that it was the work of the Hillside Stranglers, who at the time they thought was actually only one person. 
Jill oh. hadn't had the easiest life. So she started out in Brooklyn and ran away from there. Um, wow. And she had 10 siblings. She had a huge family. A I can barely deal with just you. Like, I, how I, would deal I was going to say, I have difficulty more. keeping track with just you. Yeah. <laughs> Another eight of us? No. So she was only five feet tall and she was really slender as well. So when she was Tiny. snatched off Sunset Boulevard, she didn't even weigh 100 pounds. Oh my God. That's just. So she was a tiny little woman. Mm-hmm. Um, quick trigger yeah. warning here because this is awful. Um, skip ahead a couple of minutes if you don't want details because we're getting right to it. Um, mm-hmm. She was found nude by people shooting a film in the area. Um, she oh. was in a rather unusual position. So she was on her knees with her face on the ground. And it looked as though she'd been posed like that intentionally. Like she didn't just fall that way. She was put. Yeah, she was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he had used a nearby rock, which was found, and it did have blood on it, to beat her face in. And <sighs> he'd been strangled with her belt and one of the legs of her trousers. She yeah, had three bite that's... marks on her left breast, and she'd also been raped and sodomized. So. This at the time was basically the MO of the Hillside Stranglers and detectives in the area were so preoccupied with that case that they didn't think it could potentially be somebody completely different. Around the same time, a tip had come in from New York regarding the Ellen Hover case that someone called John Berger had been arrested by the police several years earlier. So detectives looked into this and they realized that this was actually a guy called Rodney Alcala and he lived in LA. And he did have a pretty gross criminal history and was a registered sex offender. So the pieces are coming together a bit, a, a bit, bit more. Seeing getting to figure out that John Berger and Rodney Alcala are the same guy. That's that's um, a good start. whether or not they can connect him to anything is something else. But they're beginning to figure oh, yeah. out these two people are in fact the same person. Mm. So the it's... FBI came to talk to Rodney a month after he killed Jill Barkham, and he admitted that he'd met Ellen previously, which is why his name was in her diary. But they didn't have anything else to go on, and Rodney didn't slip anything up during the interview, so they had to let him go. Yeah. The amount of times where they fucking had him. Yeah, they, they had him in the room. Yeah, he was yeah. right there in the room, and it's but they can't just slap cuffs on everyone. No. But they seemed so close, and it's so frustrating. It's really frustrating. So a year after she went missing, Ellen's body was found. She was buried under rocks, only a single mile from one of her family's summer houses. By the time that she was found, Ellen's remains were skeletal, and she was identified through dental records, and she had jewellery on her, which the family recognised. And these were two rings, an ankle bracelet, and a hair clip. Police would hear in later years how another hopeful young model was taken to this exact same spot for a photography session with Rodney, a.k.a. John Berger. Oh, that's creepy. Like the fact he that buried he buried someone, the women there, yeah, where he buried Ellen is like, yeah, all kinds of fucked up. That's gross. That's that's gross. That's icky. I hate that. So it's so place, disrespectful. It's, I mean, that literally is like on so many levels. Yeah, the police could not determine a cause of death, which suggests that there was no damage to the skeleton itself. This would be mm-hmm. consistent with the strangulation as a manner of death, like how Rodney Alcala would kill his other victims. Obviously, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will know that strangulation can often um, break or fracture the hyoid bone in your neck, um, which is that mm-hmm. one that if you if you sort of put your hand here, you can actually feel... The front. Yeah, yeah, it feels a bit like a horseshoe. It's that sort of horseshoe shape. Mm-hmm. You can actually feel it. And that's... Uh, 
it's not actually connected via a joint to any other bone in your body. It just sort of is suspended by itself, which is quite interesting. So um, it's like a loose bone. Yeah, basically. And when a loose bone in my you neck. get strangled, um, the hyoid bone often breaks, which is how people mm-hmm. can tell if you've been strangled or not. Um, yeah. But it doesn't always break or fracture. And in this instance, I'm guessing it didn't because they couldn't determine a cause of death. Um, but that doesn't mean she wasn't strangled. And the chances are she most likely was. Yeah, good for So a newspaper article from when Ellen's body was discovered in 1978 reads, quote, County police were looking for a photographer with a history of sex crimes who Miss Hover had met a few days before her disappearance on July 15, 1977. The first substantial clue to what had happened to Miss Hover came from a calendar in the walk-up apartment at 686 Third Avenue, where she lived alone. In the square for July 15th, she had written the name John Berger. That name proved to be an alias of the photographer now suspected of having killed her. In interviews with more than 200 people, Detective Tassik learned of the man's true identity, which he refused to disclose last night, and that he liked to go to the bank of the Hudson, north of the city, to watch the sunsets. End quote. So from that, it sounds to me as though by the time Ellen was found in June 1978, they did have a pretty good idea of who had done it, but they didn't have anything to nail him with. So they knew who he was, they knew what he'd done, but they just didn't have anything to convict him. And I think at this point, because he's already got away with so much, like in terms of what he did to Tali Shapiro, he basically got away with that. They probably don't risk him. They, They can't risk putting him on trial for something. And then if he gets away with it, they can't try him for that again. So mm-hmm. they have to make sure they get it right the first time. So to get the timeline right, he killed Jill Barkham in November 1977. And then the Ellen Hover task force came to talk to him the following month in December 1977. Then a few months after the FBI task force left LA and Rodney Alcala in their rearview mirrors, the rapist and killer would strike again. He didn't seem to care that a couple of days ago the FBI had come to talk to him from the other end of the country for a murder he'd committed. It didn't put him off or scare him whatsoever. He was just so brazen and he thought he was much smarter than everyone else. I mean, he's interacted with the FBI like on the outside and remaining on the outside. He's yeah. going to be like, I can yeah, do anything. He's getting away right there with it and he feels like he can do, do whatever he wants. Yeah, it's gross. A 27-year-old nurse called Georgia Wickstead had driven her colleague home from a bar one night in December 1977, and she didn't show up the next day for work. The police were called, as this was very unlike her, and she wasn't answering her phone. Barbara Gale, who is the colleague that she drove home the previous night, was actually the one who reported her missing. The police found signs of forced entry to her apartment, and they rushed inside, but it was far too late. George's body was on the floor near to her bed, and she had been savagely beaten and strangled. A hammer near her body looked to be the weapon used to bludgeon her head, and I've seen one source online say that her genitals were mutilated. Mm. Now, I've only found, I've only been able to find one source for this, um, and I couldn't find anything else to back it up, but this would not shock me, because his crimes are vicious, and the violence in each one seems to be getting worse. Yeah, it's definitely escalating. Each of the victims that we've found so far has had multiple methods of violence inflicted on them as well with a multitude of Mm -hmm. instruments each time so him stepping up and doing something to mutilate her more would not shock me in the slightest no surprised by that yeah for anything it's consistent exactly so dna evidence was collected but the technology was not there to do anything other than to say hey 
this is some fluid. We found it. They kept yeah. it. They they kept it, which is That's great. good. Sometimes it gets caught. Later it's going to catch yeah. up with him. But for now, Rodney Alcala had got away with yet another murder. Before the end of 1977. So this is, we're, we're in December right now um, when yeah. Georgia gets murdered. But even before wow. the end of the year, another girl will be killed that Rodney Alcala would be suspected of murdering. Pamela Jean Lamson was 19 years old when she went to Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. Her mother stated that Pamela went to meet a photographer at the baseball game and was never seen alive again. That's awful. She's got a lovely name, though, Pamela Lamson. Her body was found a short while later near a country trail, near a county trail, mm. sorry. She had been oh. strangled and beaten. A composite sketch was made from a witness sighting, and it was very close to how Ronnie Alcala looked in the 70s. Not only mm. that, but actually years later, um, a court testimony provided would put him in the same general area as where Pamela was taken from. Wow. So, yeah. So he's fucked like, up a little bit over there. Yeah. He's not completely seamless as he thinks he is. It's devastating for that family losing someone right before Christmas as well. Oh my god, it's terrible. I mean, like losing someone at any time of year is horrific, but like these mm-hmm. ones that are all in winter, like at the it's end of the whole year, other. Oh my god, it just level of sad. Absolutely ruined Christmas every year. You you must yeah. be fucked. Mm-hmm. Several months later, in 1978, an FBI task force showed up at Alcala's mother's house. These agents were part of the Hillside Strangler Task Force and they were questioning every known registered sex offender in the area. So that must have taken fucking forever because there's probably loads of... Yeah, that would have taken ages. (laughs) So basically what they did was they followed Rodney Alcala's car as he drove to his mother's house and then they questioned him. They didn't charge him with anything aside from finding a small amount of marijuana on him. So he was charged (laughs) with drug possession and he was out of jail by the end of June. Yeah, that does it. I think this particular interaction is really interesting because it's really Mm. quite something to think that a task force specifically set up to catch a serial killer could have had a cosy sit-down interview with another serial Mm -hmm. killer in their mum's house and they didn't even notice. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like we don't know what they were thinking at the time because it could be that the officers there were like, holy shit, this guy's dodgy as fuck. But they can't arrest someone on a gut feeling. And they clearly didn't think that he was the Hillside Strangler, which is true because mm-hmm. he's not the Hillside Strangler. But I do find it really ironic that they're there for one serial killer and they end up just having a chat with another one. And then leaving them to it as well. And then leaving them to it to just go and murder it's like, people. I... <laughs> but it's, it's just, like, I mean, there's clearly serial killers active right now that we don't know about. But it's just yeah. so weird for me to think that their whole job was to catch a serial killer. That was why yeah. they were employed. That was the only job they had to do. Mm-hmm. And they, met they encounter one. one. Yeah. Nope. And they're like, thanks <laughs> for your time, Mr. Alcala. You have a good day now. You're not our serial killer, so yeah. adios. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it wasn't just the task force that he managed to fool. So Rodney mm. was still holding down his job at the LA Times as a typesetter. Yeah. Even if some of his colleagues thought he was a bit of a weird dude, he didn't set enough yeah. alarm bells off for anyone to report him for anything or even to put in an anonymous tip. Mm. <clears throat> he used to actually bring some of his photographs to work and show his workmates oh. the nude and risque photos that he had taken of women. Yeah. Which... I think is weird 
one of his colleagues was very weekly in 2011 about her experiences and she said quote i thought it was weird but i was young i didn't know anything when i asked why he took the photos he said their moms asked him to i remember the girls <laughs> were naked end quote sorry no yeah, one's parents think of a lot of moms would be like yeah can you just like the children in the my daughter? that's not that doesn't exist rodney yeah so firstly from what i've read <sighs> There seems to yeah. just be a lot of photos and a lot of women. We know that yeah, he a... whole I'm a freelance photographer thing as a way to lure women to quiet locations so that he could kill them. Yeah, we need like stacks. So yeah, so to look credible. A portfolio, which is exactly what he amassed. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. what we don't know for sure at this point is how many of these women had been murdered by him. Mm, as we're true. talking right now, we know that in the timeline, there are five young women at this point in his life that he had killed. There would yeah. later be suspicions of more victims from this time period that might have been there under his disgusting hands, but we don't know. No. It's the brazenness that gets me. So he like so obviously not all the photos that he's showing off to people will be women that he's murdered, but some of them will be. And he shows oh, yeah, these photographs sure. to his colleagues. And he mm-hmm. knows what he's done. And he's showing these photos to people that he sees at work every day. Yeah. So and he'll know they'll be complimenting these women he's like yeah the oncologist aren't they and thinking yeah he killed her <laughs> he'll be bragging to himself on the inside oh exactly time. he's showing off and he's Gross. proud of it and he i mm-hmm. think at this point he's really enjoying having a dirty little secret that only he knows about yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. obviously he was also fooling the people he would take the photos of so he would approach mm. women that he thought were, were attractive and he would say yeah. he was a freelance photographer would they like their picture taken he made himself out to be a professional uh, who did this for mm-hmm. a living and he had this huge stack of photos that he carried around to prove how many models he had kind of woman, leanne Leiden, who was photographed by rodney alcala and lived told her story about her experience she mm-hmm. was 17 when she met rodney and he took photographs of her in her parents living room yeah. That feels icky. That just feels really gross. I don't like that he's in a house, in a parent's no. house. So he also showed us some of the photos that he'd taken, obviously to show what an established fashion photographer he was. And mm. she said this at the incident, quote, he said he was a professional, so in my mind, I was being a model for him. In addition to shots of women, there was spread after spread of teenage boys. I look oh. back now and I can't believe I was so trusting, end quote. Yeah. I find this kind of weird. Not weird in the sense that I don't believe her, but like... Yeah, no, I'm puzzled. None of the victims that we know about, are there any males? They're all... Yeah, I was going to say there's... Yeah. Obviously, he's just a predator through and through. And it seems as though, even though he does have a type, it seems as though he will take advantage of anyone that he can take advantage of. Um, Mm, I just find it interesting that there are photographs in his sort of arsenal of young boys i find that very disturbing yeah it's very suspicious there's nothing good in that oh nothing good whatsoever at all this whole thing, <laughs> like, I, nothing good. I don't oh no there's not well no. i mean this so this is not the end of the list of people that rodney alcala would trick the story gets even crazier from here because he actually oh, ended up on national tv on a show called the dating game which is incredibly I... famous we had something really similar in the uk do you remember that show that silla black did yeah, the one with the screens yeah, yeah, yeah. and like so, all the big lights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it was really pretty. It had the lights and it was where one single person would talk to three other single people through a screen. 
Yeah. So that's based off the dating game, which is an American TV show. And Rodney O'Connell oh, was actually okay. on it. And he actually went ahead to win a date with The Bachelorette. As creepy as fuck. That's really gross because he'll have put on everything there on TV that he gave to the Oh, yeah. There's the like footage of really? it and there's audio and stuff. There's lots he'll of- have been so he's happy that to- he was literally showing everyone what he'd been yeah. doing this whole time. Should we get into it? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Oh well, you're going to have to wait till next week. No. Yes. You've just asked me. Yeah, I did just You've ask just me. asked me. You've yeah, just asked me. What the fuck, Jolly? So, <laughs> the there's too much information to fit into one episode, and I want to do the story oh. justice, so I'll tell it properly without having to rush. Okay. Um, but I thought that leaving it there would be a good halfway point, because that's, everything that's, that happens yeah. after the dating game, it kind of snowballs really hard. Ooh, so, wow. Obviously as well, because it's quite an it's quite an unusual point in the story. So I thought if we kick off next week's episode with that part of it, then that'll be a yeah. good beginning to the episode next week. You know what? Yeah, you've done the right thing. Let's not rush this. Is it as excited as I am? I've also got to like pull my reins back a bit. Yeah. I think, you know what? This needs some some justice and some more tea for next week. Exactly. Okay. And hopefully <laughs> next week we'll be able to record in person. Yeah, that too. Bullshit, because I hate it already. This is the first time we've done it, and I already hate it. <laughs> yeah, you're not a fan. I don't like this at all. Um, okay yeah, there's it. enough that can go wrong when we're just recording in person. <laughs> like, there's even more that can go wrong when it's on Zoom. If there's one rogue sneeze, we're fucked. But... I hate this. So, yeah, <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. Right, so we'll leave it there for this week, I think. Um, yeah. You haven't already, please do leave us a rating and review because we yep, love hearing. If you have case recommendations, send them to creeps and crime storytime at gmail.com. And we, I always post um, photos that are relevant to the cases that we cover. So as we're discussing it, you can look at photos that are relevant mm-hmm. and then you can just see what we're talking about. And then try it with each other in the comments. Super exactly. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's everything. So have a good yeah. week. I hope you yeah, have a good enjoy our telling of this story. And mm-hmm. yeah, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.